I'm very thankful for my wife, Sherry. Uh, she is a uh, woman of prayer, and we make fun of her all the time because she, mid-conversation, she'll just break into prayer, and we're like, what? Oh, okay. We're praying now. So that happened this morning. I put the car in park, about to open the door, have my hand on the handle, and she breaks out into prayer. And one of the things she said in her prayer this morning was uh, that uh, God would have me say the things that need to be said, that he wants me to say. And uh, whether those things are things that I have prepared and thought about and are in my notes, or whether there's something that comes to my mind. So something came to my mind. <laughs> uh, in the fall of, in, in October, October 4th, 1986, 11.45 p.m., coming back to campus from a friend of mine's out in um, Factorville area. Uh, I was in a car accident and uh, broke my neck. And some of you know that story. Some of you don't. Uh, I'm not going to tell the story of the broken neck, but I want to give you a little of the backstory, the rest of the story stuff. Uh, I woke up that day with this very strange sense that I was going to get bad news. And uh, I spent a lot of time in prayer. Um, My mom had had cancer, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll get a phone call and her cancer has come back. Um, That's really what I thought was going to happen. So I spent some time in prayer, and the Lord led me to uh, James chapter 1, which talks about trials and enduring trials, and I'm praying about these trials. And uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear the bad news. And um, as I said, I I got in the car. Um, We were coming out of Tall Timbers Trailer Park, and uh, we had to make that left turn to come back towards campus. And uh, we got T-boned, and I was in the back seat, and I got knocked, knocked across the car and uh, broke my neck. And for the next three weeks, really three months and really a year, I endured all the things that, that have to do with going through the surgeries, two surgeries, and the recoveries. And the <sighs> my arm was paralyzed for three months, and I wasn't the same. Um, I lost so much weight that uh, it literally hurt to sit. Okay? You can imagine what that might be like. Just lost all this muscle. And so there was this long, long, long period of recovery. But um, I knew it was coming. And then when I got to the hospital... And the doctor looked down at me and said, young man, you must be, you you should be dead. We have this procedure that we have to do on you. And uh, my mom was an emergency room nurse, head nurse for 24 years. So I said, can I call my mother before I make a decision about this procedure? And so they handed me the phone, they called called my mother and she kind of talked me through it. But I thought to myself, I thought I would be getting the call and instead, I was the one making the call. And there was this trial, this unbelievable trial that I was going to have to endure for days and weeks and months. And I share that story with you because sometimes God does that. He brings circumstances into our life, and it feels like everything is out of control. Um, had a, a coworker who said, sometimes you feel like you're walking out on a limb. And I don't mind walking out on a limb as long as someone's not on the, the back end of that limb with a saw, right? Ready to cut me down. But sometimes you feel like that. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to relate what happens to Jesus. We're not going to stay in Acts chapter 2. Peter's going to relate what happened to Jesus in a way to help uh, the the Jews that he's speaking to on the day of Pentecost to understand what's the meaning of all these events. 
And he said, listen, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. It was the predetermined plan of God. As a young man, I always thought, uh, I, I looked, there were these pastors that I looked up to, I admired. And the one thing that I observed about them was they all had gone through some unbelievable trial. And that unbelievable trial strengthened their faith. And in the fall of 1986, I faced my unbelievable trial. I've had a few, but that was one of them. I think about Jesus and what we're looking at in John, really starting in John chapter 14 and moving forward. This unbelievable few days, actually an unbelievable week that, that moves into this, cra- this crazy time where all kinds of crazy things are happening. And from a human perspective, it could feel like everything is out of control. Out of control. I was talking with uh, Cindy right before the message last week. And uh, Cindy was reading the scripture and she was, had been meditating on the scripture. And, and uh, one of the things that impressed her, which also impressed me, was the fact that Jesus was in absolute control. Even though everything around him was out of control, Jesus was in control. And he was in control because he knew that he was in the middle of the predetermined plan of God for his life. Um, when you study the Bible, there's a number of things that should stand out to you. One of the things that should stand out to you is when there is a question that doesn't need an answer, a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. And in our passage in John chapter 18, there are actually two of them. One of them, Pastor Stephen mentioned already this morning. We all know about the story of uh, Simon Peter taking out his sword and trying to defend Jesus and uh, cutting off the servant, the priest's servant's ear, Malchus. And then Jesus says, to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And the obvious answer is, yes, you you, you have to drink the cup. Now, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And after the third time, he, he realizes this is the predetermined plan of God. And there are going to be times in our lives when there are trials that come along. There are going to be times in our lives when, when things feel absolutely out of control. And in the middle of it, you're tempted to say, God, where are you? I'm praying, but I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. He's still there. He's still active. He's still involved in your life. He's still in control, even when things seem absolutely out of control. The cup that the Father has given me, shouldn't I drink it, Peter? Absolutely drink it. And the events that are going to occur here in in this passage are part of a a bigger section of scripture that begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem and uh, move on from there. And uh, I just want to kind of walk you through some of the events that 
that have, have been taking place and are about to take place. On Saturday and Sunday. On Saturday, Jesus is involved in his last public ministry outside of Jerusalem. Um, a few days before the final Passover, Jesus draws near to Jerusalem in John eleven fifty five, arriving at Bethlehem uh, just days before the Passover. And on Saturday, uh, he's at Simon the leper's house, and this is where he's anointed with the oil in preparation for his death. On Monday, the next day, Jesus, this is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he visits the temple. He returns to Bethany. This is the day, Monday is the day when Jesus is presented to the nation. It's also the day when the Passover lamb is selected. On Tuesday, on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus, is, Jesus curses the fig tree. He goes down to Jerusalem. Uh, the place is packed because there are all these pilgrims who've come from all over Israel who've come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And the religious leaders begin to seek how they will kill him. They've already made up their mind. On Wednesday, the disciples see the withered fig tree that he had cursed on the way into Jerusalem. Uh, that's a day of controversy and, and arguments with the religious leaders. That afternoon, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and gives this sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew 24 and 25. Um, <clears throat> Jesus predicts that in two days, he would be crucified at the time of the Passover. And Judas plans his betrayal of Christ with the religious leaders. On Thursday, his disciples prepare the Passover meal. And Jesus and his disciples have that Passover meal in the upper room. They leave the upper room and Jesus delivers this conversation to his disciples that, that we've just gone through, John 14 through 16. And then he ends by going to the garden and praying for his disciples, John chapter 17. After that time of prayer, he goes into the garden again and this is where he suffers in agony and he prays, uh, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Later that night, he's betrayed. That's the night of his uh, arrest. He's betrayed by Judas and then there is a series of trials. There are two sets of trials that are happening. There's, there's what's happening with the religious leaders, Caiaphas and Annas, and there's what's happening with Pilate. Early on Friday morning, oh, by the way, the trials are illegal. <laughs> there are, I've read numerous articles about this, but uh, there are all kinds of things that are happening that shouldn't be happening, according to Jewish law, according to the scriptures. Um, early on Friday morning, he's tried by the Sanhedrin, by Pilate, by Herod Antipas, by Pilate again. And he's led to the cross and crucified. And buried. At the time of the sacrifice of the Passover lambs in the temple, Jesus, our Passover lamb, was killed and crucified. He laid in the tomb during the Sabbath day on Saturday and then early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. So we're breaking into uh, a section of scripture that's really a long story about a, a week and a day and a night that are absolutely out of control. But Jesus goes before us as our example 
full of faith and confidence that although life looks out of control, it's absolutely in control. We have many examples of this back in the Old Testament. Um, last week I mentioned uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but there are many other examples of uh, people of faith who enter into circumstances and situations that seem out of control only to realize that God is absolutely in control. Uh, probably the one that stands out to me the most is the Joseph story because of all the horrible things that happened to Joseph and how easy it would be for a person who grows up in a dysfunctional family who gets, because of their dysfunction and hatred for him, his brothers, they sell him into slavery. They want to kill him. Then they decide to sell him into slavery. He's a slave, but then he's blessed, and so he rises to this position of prominence, and then he's falsely accused. And he could be killed. He should have been killed, and he wasn't killed. Instead, he goes to prison, and he rises to prominence in the prison. Story after story, and, and there are folks who know Pharaoh who are in prison with him, and he asks them, when you get restored back to your place of responsibility, remember me. And the text is real clear, they forgot him. <laughs> but in the end, in the end of that story, when he has a chance to step back and look at it, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had a plan. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He had a plan. And he was working out his plan to preserve all these people alive today. In the middle of our trial, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our confusion, in the middle of the circumstances that seem absolutely out of control, God is still in control. And when it seems like he's most absent, he's actually working behind the scenes in ways that we could never believe. Um, I spent 29 years as a, a dorm director in campus housing at BBC, CSU. And uh, I remember a long time ago, one of, my, uh, one of the guys in my dorm shared a story with me about going to the, the, the banquet in the spring. And after the banquet, he and his girlfriend went out and, and some other students went out and they, they went to the uh, gorge at Nayog at night. I don't know why they thought that would be a great idea, but that's what they did. And uh, he told me about going there and the, the things they did, nothing bad. Uh, but he told me about the, the things that they did and, and where they went and all that and the path they took. And then he said to me, we went back the next day. And we got to see the path that we walked. And right next to the path that we walked was this unbelievable drop-off. And we had no idea. We were on the verge of disaster and we had no idea. And we were just happily walking along, talking, joking around, roughhousing, things that guys do with other guys, just doing all that stuff. And we had no idea how close we were to the cliff. But God protected us. We had no idea. This passage in John chapter 18 is a situation where there are people who are in an event that they have no idea of the importance of in human history, right? No idea. Peter has no idea. We talked a little bit about this last time. Um, there's, this, there's, this, there's this thing happening in the, in, in the Gospel of John, and it's the fact that people don't understand, right? Jesus says one thing, and they hear something else. We talked about it last, last time. Uh, I want to I mention it again because it's so significant. 
Jesus in John chapter 3 talks about uh, Nicodemus comes to him and says, you, you must be from God because no one can do the signs that you do. And Jesus doesn't answer his question and he, instead he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus does not understand. Am I supposed to go into my mother's womb and be born a second time? No, Nicodemus, you don't understand. I thought you were the teacher, the teacher of Israel. I'm telling you about heavenly things and you're, you're only thinking about earthly things. Heavenly things, earthly things. And so they don't understand. In our passage, Peter thinks that Jesus has come to set up a kingdom and to destroy the Romans. And Jesus is a king. But in our passage, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? So because Peter thinks that Jesus has come to set up a kingdom and destroy the Romans, he's ready to fight. He's got his sword. Earthly, heavenly. Peter was going to fight this battle with earthly weapons, a sword. Jesus is going to fight a greater battle, defeating death, defeating sin. And heavenly weapons, heavenly priorities have to be used. For Jesus, that means he's going to have to be the sacrificial lamb. So in John chapter 18 and verse 11, put your sword back into the sheath because the cup that the Father has given me, I have to drink it. That obvious question that that requires an obvious answer is a clue for us. I have to drink it. I have to go through this. Remember, he's prayed and submitted himself to the will of the Father, right? This is the plan of God. From a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't seem like God is in it at all. In fact, it doesn't seem, go back into your Old Testament. Read that Joseph story. Read about Ruth and Naomi. Read about what happened to Daniel when he decided to pray every day at the same time. Read about the circumstances in these people's lives when they commit themselves to obeying God and then things begin to happen that don't seem to make sense and you, you almost get the sense, where's God? In fact, Joseph's narrative, the book of Ruth, These are places where God's not even mentioned a whole lot of times. And so you're tempted to think, where is God? He's there. He's involved. He's got a plan. And most importantly, he's still good. He's still taking care of you. It may not feel like that, but he's still good. He's still taking care of you. I told the story last week about the, 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 the little girl who, wanted, who was promised a nickel by her father, and he gave her a $20 bill, and she was upset. Sometimes the good that God has for us is not something that we want or desire because we, don't, we just don't understand what God understands. We just don't know what God knows. We don't know what we need. Like God knows what we need. So the first question is, shall I drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Shall I not drink that cup? Obviously the answer is yes, you have to, you must drink the cup. And so it begins. This crowd of Roman soldiers comes in verse 12. Um, it says a cohort. A cohort can be anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. 
On top of that, there are also uh, the, uh, pre, uh, the, the police force from the temple, from the religious leaders. And this massive crowd comes with, as the, as the passage says, lanterns and torches and weapons. They're prepared for a fight. They're prepared to have to do a whole lot of searching. They're prepared for all kinds of crazy things to happen because remember, this is the Passover and there's tons of people everywhere and they know how much the people love Jesus and they know that if they arrest him and people find out about it, there could be a fight. And so in the middle of the night, they come looking for Jesus. And Jesus, Judas knew exactly where Jesus was. And so he leads them to Jesus. He betrays him, the other gospels tell us, with a kiss. And as was shared already, and Jesus says, who are you looking for, guys? I am. And this big crowd falls down. Now, while they're getting themselves up together again, Jesus says, who are you looking for, guys? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And here he's arrested. Verse 12, they arrest him and they bind him and they lead him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews what God does in passages of Scripture where it seems like he's absent. He drops little, uh, uh, okay, let me use the term that's used today, right? Marvel fans, what's the term that's used today when they drop hints all through the movie? Breadcrumbs? That's the term I've heard, breadcrumbs, right? At the end of the movie, after the credits, there's another scene that comes on, right? And that gives you all kinds of clues about what's, what's to come. They call it breadcrumbs from, what's that from? Some, some story, right, where, what story is it? Hansel and Gretel, right. It leaves you clues to know that something's, there's, something's, there's more to, to this than meets the eye. And the breadcrumbs that God drops along the way Remind us that he's still in control. Remind us that he's still in control. So, Peter, uh, John tells us about Caiaphas. And way back in John chapter... It's in my notes here. It is in my notes. It is in my notes. Uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, it's been made clear that Caiaphas is the one who said, it's expedient that someone should die for the nation. Lazarus has been resurrected. People are coming to Jesus by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands. The Jewish leaders get nervous, they get upset, and they said, if this man continues like this, the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. We've got to do something about this. This has to be stopped. And Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it's expedient that one man should die on behalf of the people. Breadcrumb. Right? If you're thinking about earthly things, you won't catch it. But if you're thinking about heavenly things, you catch it. God's in control. God's in control. This is the plan of God that one man would die on behalf of the nation. And John tells us that that was actually prophesying. He didn't know he was prophesying, but he was prophesying about the reality of God's plan. One man would die for the nation. So the trials begin. 
the man who seems to be the uh, leader of the disciples, the one who is most bold, most courageous, most ready to speak up for good or for bad, Peter, right? Now we find him in this process of denying Jesus. So at the same time that Jesus is being interrogated before the high priest, Peter is denying Jesus. Peter and John both have access into the high priest's court and they're able to stand outside and, and uh, warm themselves by the fire. And as they're warming themselves by the fire, there's this, there's this uh, conversation that, that springs up. Aren't you one of his, this man's disciples? Peter said, no, verse 17, I am not. Verse 19, the high priest then, we switch over to the high priest, questions Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. One of the illegal things that was done. When you go, when, you, when a Jew, a believer in Israel, uh, is being interrogated or is going to be tried, it's not about the person's testimony of themselves. You bring two or three witnesses. By the word of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That's not what happens here. Instead, they interrogate him in the hopes that he says something that they can use to trap him. And Jesus says, I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews have come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoken to them. They know what I said. One of the officers standing by strikes Jesus and says, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? What Jesus is saying is this isn't the way we conduct the trial. This isn't the way you interrogate someone. This isn't the way it's done. Instead, you bring witnesses. You have witnesses in order to make a charge, and then those witnesses come and testify of the charge, and there's time for the person who's accused to bring witnesses to defend themselves, Usually if it's something that's a murder charge, uh, a capital offense charge where you're going to be put to death, then at least a day is given for that person to produce witnesses to defend themselves. None of this happens. Out of control. But God is in control. Then we shift back to outside. Simon Peter standing warming himself. Someone else says, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? I am not. One of the slaves, being a, a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denies it for the third time, and immediately the rooster crowed. Prophecy fulfilled. God is in control. So, breadcrumbs all along the way. Things seem out of control, but... Not really, God's in control, even though it doesn't always feel that way, even though it doesn't always look that way. Now the scene shifts to Jesus before Pilate. Uh, they lead Jesus from Caiaphas into the governor's house, the praetorium. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Jews don't go into the home of a Gentile and be defiled. There were things often that happened in this place that would make the Jews unclean, and so they're not going in. So these conversations with Pilate are private. It's one-on-one -on -one conversation with him and Jesus. And again, this earthly, heavenly dynamic is going on, so you have... Pilate thinking like an earthly person and Jesus thinking like someone who has come from heaven. 
Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's not a charge. So Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. They already had their minds made up. No charges, no witnesses. They already have their minds made up. Guilty, and he must be executed. Verse 32. This was said to fulfill the word which Jesus spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Breadcrumb. God's in control. Think about it. From a human perspective, you get bad news, and then 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 you get bad news, news, like waves. I think I've told this story somewhere along the line. A couple years ago, we went to... Virginia Beach from vacation. And I, I've, I've been struggling with my knees, and uh, walking is, is a little more difficult than it is, and stability in walking. And I'm coming out of the ocean, and a wave, the surf is really rough. And if you're out where I like to be, where, you know, neck deep, and you're just kind of floating on the waves as they come in, that's fun. But I'm coming in, and now the waves are crashing. Knocks me down. Water comes over me. I stand up. I take two steps. Wave. Knocks me down. <laughs> Finally, after about five or six of those times, I literally crawled onto the beach on my hands and knees because that's the only way to do it without falling down again. It was really humiliating. It was a rough surf day. So that's my excuse. You ever feel like that? where wave after wave after wave of seemingly bad things are happening and it's out of control and it doesn't seem to let up. Not only in the passage, but in our lives, God has provided us with breadcrumbs. Oh, he, he will use the scripture. He will use the body of Christ, fellow believers. He will use our prayer time. He will use our time that... Ooh, that we spend in the word of God. And he will encourage us to keep going when the waves are crashing, to keep going. So Pilate enters again into the praetorium and summons Jesus and says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on, an, on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate says, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Again, Jesus doesn't really answer his question, but he tells him what he needs to hear. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, and here's one of those things where it's hard to translate from one language to another because things, you know, Americans, we Americans say all kinds of slang things and people who come from other places have no idea what we're talking about. One of my favorites is we had a a young man from Myanmar. Maybe some of you remember him. And he was trying to use uh, American slang, and it, it didn't work. And he was talking about beating around the bush, but he didn't know how to formulate it. So he said, why are you beating the bush? <laughs> so here's one of those things. What Jesus is saying is, you said it. Okay, some of the translations say, you say that I'm the king of the Jews. Some of the translators say, you say correctly that I'm the king of the Jews. I think the point is, what you're saying is true. That's the point. What you're saying is true. I am a king. 
What kind of king? Well, he's already told us what kind of king. His kingdom is not of this world. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. He is the king of the truth. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth. One of the things that's happening in this passage, I haven't mentioned it, but there's, a, there's another contrast going on between truth and lies. Truth and lies. That which is illegal, right, and that which is legal. Doing things the wrong way and doing things the right way. There's this contrast all throughout the passage. Because what's happening is that on one level, there's a whole lot of lies happening. Jesus, in his conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes, much earlier in John, said, you are of your father the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. And those who follow him, those who are his children, are going to be people of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. And those who follow him, those who are his children, are going to be people who kill. You know what the Jews' response was? Our father is Abraham. And why would you accuse us of lying? And why would you accuse us of killing you? Immediately after that, they say that he's a Samaritan, he's full of demon-possessed. They make up all kinds of lies about him. (laughs) And then they plot to kill him. And by the way, since there's nothing they can do about Lazarus being risen from the dead, they're going to kill him too, just for good measure. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who hears, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. Here's the reality the people who are not of the truth will not hear the voice of Jesus. Face-to-face conversation with the king of the universe, and Pilate doesn't get it, right? He misses the point. A long time ago in this church, we had a a gentleman who was doing his internship, uh, pastoral internship, and I remember one time he prayed at the beginning of the service, Lord, I pray that the people who need to hear, who should hear this message would hear it this morning. And I talked to him afterwards about that. And he had this real strong conviction about the fact that you, you never know who's in the congregation. You never know who's really of God and who's not of God. And some people are there to listen and some people are not. And I can't control the people who are not. But I pray God for the people who are that they might hear the word and receive it and respond to it and obey it. Pilate is an earthly king. And as such, he has an earthly mindset. It's a challenge for us because if we're not careful, we can have an earthly mindset. We are about heavenly business. And earthly weapons, Peter and your sword, do not work when we're engaged in spiritual activity. Earthly words don't compute. Heavenly words don't compute when a person is earthly-minded. I have learned through the course of doing a lot of preaching over my life that there's things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't recommend movies because there's somebody who's going to be offended by the movie you recommend. You shouldn't recommend books because there's somebody who's going to be offended by the book. So I'm going to recommend a book. (laughs) I'm going to do what I shouldn't do. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. If you've ever read it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read it, you should. Now, it is 18th century, 19th century uh, fantasy, science fiction. But it's about the great divide, 
when he says divorce, the great divide between those who are of God and those who are not of God. And he's got all these crazy things that happen in his story, and I'm not going to go into all the details. But except to say that the people who are of God, um, they get a taste of heaven and they know it's right. They hear the words and they resonate in their hearts. And the people who are not of God, they can't stand it. It's uncomfortable. All they can do is complain about it. They don't like it. Because this is not their world. This is not their kingdom. Everyone who hears the truth, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. That's the build-up to the second rhetorical question, the question that needs no answer. Pilate says, what is truth? I'm going to get myself in trouble again. I'm going to recommend something else. So I'm, I go online, and I'm looking at different things about what is truth, and, and I come across a sermon preached by Billy Graham in 1985 on this passage, what is true? You should read it. It's not very long. I found it very um, inspiring, challenging. Um, Billy Graham has a, a huge, <coughs> excuse me, role in my family's life. Um, at least two of my sisters were. My family was at the Billy Graham Crusade in New York City in 1960 something. I was either a child or I wasn't born yet. Something. I was really young. But they were there, and two of my sisters actually came to Christ at that Billy Graham crusade. And a year ago, two years ago, we were at the uh, Bible Museum. We decided to go to the Bible Museum, and uh, I guess it was more than two years ago. Anyway, a number of years ago, we were at the Bible Museum, and we walk in, and there's a Billy Graham exhibit. And they have all these things about Billy Graham's life and his ministry, and... Um, They have a place where you can go and sit down and actually listen to some of his messages. And one of the messages that was playing when we walked in was the sermon from the 1960, whatever it was, 61, 63, crusade in New York City. The one that my sister came to Christ and my family was at. I remember the tears in my sister's eyes as she listened to the message and relived the moments when she came to Christ. Everyone who, hears the, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What is truth? Here's the things that Pilate considered truth. If you've ever seen, I'm gonna get myself in trouble again, Passion of the Christ. Uh, they, play up, they play this scene up really big because the reality is the truth for Pilate is that if I don't take care of this and I don't take care of you, Caesar could have my head and the heads of all my family. So when you say you're here to testify of the truth and I say what is truth, I'm thinking about all these earthly priorities, all these things that I value that are important to me. And I want us to think about this because it's easy to step back and think, you know, Pilate's a bad guy. The reality is, if he doesn't take care of Jesus, because the Jews are bound and determined to make a big stink, a big enough stink that it will destroy the Roman peace, and if the Roman peace is destroyed, then Pilate is responsible for that. So literally his head is on the platter if he doesn't take care of it. And as that movie, Passion of the Christ, plays up, that's my truth, Pilate says. But there's a greater truth, a heavenly truth. Why are we here, folks? We're part of Christ's kingdom. We're here to glorify God, to live by faith and walk by faith every day. 
and believe him, whether times are good or times are bad, to trust him, to hold on to his precious and great promises through the hard times and remember him and honor him in the good times and not forget about him. We're here to glorify him. That's why we're here. To honor him with our lives, to trust him with all of our heart, no matter what the circumstances. That's why we're here. He's given us a great commission to make disciples of all nations. And he promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. That's why we're here. But it's easy to get caught up in the earthly priorities and think that that is what's really important. That's my truth. No matter who you vote for, for president, for governor, for senator, for whatever, none of those folks are your savior. There's only one peace that's ever going to come, and that's going to come from the prince of peace when he establishes his kingdom forever. Other than that, there's going to be war, there's going to be turmoil, there's going to be distress, there's going to be evil all around us. And it's tempting to get caught up in politics. It's tempting to get caught up in economics. It's tempting to get caught up in your career. It's tempting to get caught up in your family. It's tempting to get caught up in your sport. It's tempting to get caught up in your academics, students. And forget why you're here. There's only one truth. And that truth is the reality of Christ and his kingdom. What is truth? Pilate goes out again. This is the middle of a story. This isn't the end of the story. This is the middle of the story. So there's more to come, as we all know. Pilate goes out again to the Jews outside and says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews now? Is he saying this sarcastically? Is he saying this to rile them up? Probably. So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And then there's this little comment at the end. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's probably, putting it mildly, um, that's probably not a good translation. Barabbas was, this word that was used, the word robber, is a, a word that was used for the zealots. The zealots were a group of religious and political uh, revolutionaries. Barabbas was guilty of murder, trying to overthrow the Roman government through murder and violence and robbery. So kill people, take their money, use it for your revolutionary cause. And you're justified, right? Because you're bringing in God's kingdom through murder and violence and your revolutionary cause. I'm going to get myself in trouble, that's okay. It's tempting in America to be so caught up in our earthly concerns that we can resort to murder and violence and robbery because the cause is so great. Not that long ago, there was an individual who decided to Um, say all kinds of terrible things about the university that I work at. And and he named a bunch of names. And I was hurt personally, a number of us were hurt personally, because he mentioned our names as part of these evil people who've done all these evil things. And so not wanting to engage in a social media discussion, I privately messaged him and said, when have I ever done any of these things to you? And I was shocked at the response. Shouldn't have been, but I was. He said, you have never done anything to me that was wrong. You've never done anything to me. But the cause is so great, it doesn't matter. Really? 
It's okay to lie about people, to hurt them, because you have a cause that you think is so great. That, so the end justifies the means. The contradiction in this passage, the, the, the lie, the great big lie in this passage is the fact that do I release for you the king of the Jews? The one who is going to bring peace? Who is your true king? Who's bringing a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom? No, don't release him. Release the murder, the violent one, the robber, the man of violence. Normally, the Jewish leaders would have hated Barabbas, but in this moment, they hate Jesus so much that their hatred for Barabbas pales in comparison. And so they ask for the life of Barabbas, and they demand that Jesus be crucified. Two big questions. Shall I drink the cup that the Father has given me? Absolutely, I have to drink it. What is truth? Truth is a person, Jesus Christ. Truth is the words that he speaks. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth. And the message that they bring to us is completely different than the message that we get from humanity. The message that they give to us and the priorities that they give to us and the values that they give to us and the things of importance that we're to follow come from God. And it is easy if you're human. If you're human, anybody in here not human? If you're human, it's easy to get caught up in earthly things and not value heavenly things. Jesus took the cup. He drank it for you and for me. He died for our sins. The Lord is going to lay on him the sins of us all. He's going to take our penalty. He's going to endure God's wrath for us. That's his priority. That's the heavenly priority. He came to testify of the truth because when he speaks the words of truth, those who are of God will hear his voice. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm like a shepherd who comes to the fold of the sheep. And there are all these, these flocks of sheep all gathered around in the sheepfold. But when the shepherd comes, his sheep know his voice. And they follow him. He comes to speak the truth and all who are of God will hear his voice. Today, if you find yourself being one of those people who are one of his sheep and you hear his voice, do follow him. Do obey him. Do hear what he has to say. He may ask you to walk out on the proverbial limb. He may ask you to walk through a valley and you don't know how dangerous the valley is, or maybe you do. But God's in control. He knows what he's doing. He's good. And he has given us Evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence. Breadcrumbs, right? Reminders. Great and precious promises to hold on to when we go through those times. There's a great tendency for religious people to be so concerned about the wrong things and miss the point. Hence, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And it's easy to point the finger at them, but whenever we point the finger, there's some fingers pointing back at us. The reality is that it's, it's easy for all of us to look at those people in the Bible and see how awful they were and how unwise they were and see how caught up they were with the wrong things. But it's, it's easy for us to miss the point God is God. 
He's in control. And when things are going crazy in our lives, he's still in control. He knows what he's doing. I can step back from that car accident and I can look at it and say and see how much my faith grew from that experience. Because I was prepared spiritually for bad news, even though the bad news was mine and not someone else's, uh, I was ready. I was ready. We should all be ready. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the great and precious promises that you give us and for the story of Jesus, his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and his suffering, and his trials. Thank you that we can look at him and see his belief in his father and his trust in his father no matter what the circumstances. We can see him not wanting to go through this painful trial to drink this bitter cup and yet very willing to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish and finish his work. And I pray that we would have that heart and that mind as well. God, help us to trust you, to be people of the truth who hear your words and follow and obey. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.